0: Most people don't like to say this a lot, certainly preachers, but Christianity is a religion of paradoxes. One of them is that we believe in God's unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love, and at the same time we know that in order for us to fully live into that, we in some way must respond to this divine initiative that has been begun in us and to cooperate with in some way such that we become the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. The two readings that I wish to preach on today are from the Epistle, uh, from Colossians, and the Gospel. Both of them are about Christian maturity, and they afford the opportunity to speak about how we might understand that and what it might mean, first of all, in terms of what Paul speaks of in Colossians about that we may present everyone mature in Christ, and in the gospel reading, the famous story of Mary and Martha, and the tension that exists within Christian faith and life between the active life and the contemplative life, and how those two things are not mutually exclusive, but both necessary and should be seen in some way as a unity. When I preached every week recently about the the letter to the Galatians, I mentioned to you that in biblical, first I should say this, I made a pact to myself when I was in seminary that the stuff that I learned there about the Bible, I was not going to keep to myself. It always annoyed me no end when I first got out of seminary and would go visit some of my classmates in their parishes on vacation or something and have them get into the pulpit and preach to the congregation about Adam and Eve being two historical people. You're not going to get that from me. And some of you may think, oh, well, he goes on and on too much about it, and I just don't know. Well, you're just, there it is. And I mentioned to you when, we, when I preached about Galatians that in New Testament scholarship, the, the reigning view amongst New Testament scholars is that of the 13 letters that are attributed to Paul, seven are undoubtedly Pauline. And the other six, you know. W- well, who cares? And how would you know anyway? So let me just say that again. Remember, it's not important what the Bible says, it's important what the Bible means. So you have to know why people who spend time with this believe these things are important uh, to talk about and to write about. Paul, in the Undoubted Letters, has a certain style. He dictated all of his letters to a secretary, an amanuensis. And he has a very distinctive writing style. For example, he begins in in Greek, of course, he begins all of his sentences, or many of them, with the Greek word, un, which is, you know. You know, da-da. You know, da-da. So in Ephesians, or in Colossians, as an example, which we read from today, that doesn't, those stylistic uh, idiosyncrasies don't appear. So he either had another secretary or it was somebody who, who was an heir of his that is trying to speak about some things or he decided to change his style. Those are the three possibilities at least that you could speak of. Now the thing is that those letters in addition to that also talk about things that in the undoubted letters don't come up at all. And one of them would be the concept of Christian maturity. Paul, in the Undoubted Letters, or the Paul of the Undoubted Letters, isn't concerned about whether you and I achieve any species of maturity, because Jesus is going to come any minute. It doesn't matter. But we begin then to see in the the other letters the mention of some of these developmental things which may have been the result of Paul's pastoral experience. So you could operate on the basis, at least I always have, is I'm not really that that upset about whether Paul wrote or didn't write Colossians, but it seems to me that if you were to make the case that he did, it might also tell us something about the, the processes of his own spiritual maturity, because he is dealing with the pastoral situation on the ground. And today he is at pains to speak about some things that have to do with how we understand the work of Christ and how we understand our response to the work of Christ and what all people both in ministry and in their own Christian lives, as they seek to reflect to others their greatest place of safety and assurance, what it is that's important with regard to one's emotional, spiritual, and mental states. That this has something to do with the idea of Christian maturity. You know, this word in Greek, telias, uh, is translated in Matthew's gospel as perfect. And I've said to you many times, uh, it really does mean mature. And I don't know about you, perfect is not doable for me, mature might be. So I love this passage, it's my third favorite, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The first two you know over and over, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith from the letter to the Hebrews. And in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal Through us. And so, some species of Christian maturity uh, might be a good plan to strive for, don't you think? Paul is speaking about in this reading the preeminent place of Christ from eternity, from all of creation, and that Christ is essential to God's ultimate plan for salvation. He himself, if we speak about his own process of maturation, has come from a position that the saving work of Christ is only for the people of the covenant, the Jews, to the fact that this is being offered to everyone and that all people are being invited by God into God's saving, embrace And that the people of God that constitute the community of faith we call the Church, as they reflect to the world this reality, have the obligation to present everyone mature in Christ, starting with themselves. How might we understand what in the world it means to speak of maturity? Because if I were to speak to you only about some abstruse spiritual practices important as they may be, they may be completely external to you in terms of your everyday living. So one of the things we need to start from is what does it mean to be a mature human being? And I've said over and over again that being a mature human being has enormous spiritual and religious significance. In fact, That's what the followers of Jesus saw in him. In this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And by extension, he gave us, those who were the eyewitnesses and those who followed us subsequently, tools that we could use so that we could do those things as well. We were not merely watching some tableau of a God figure who'd come to earth doing all this stuff, but a mature human being who had achieved the highest of his human potentiality. And that means then, that if we speak about what maturity may mean, we could say something like, maturity is taking responsibility for your own being and destiny. Those of us who are in the helping professions hear all the time about why we can't take responsibility for our own being and destiny, that it's somebody else's responsibility to take responsibility for our being and destiny. And a mature person is learning how to do this. We don't do it perfectly, and sometimes we are fully responsible, and other times we're an absolute basket case. Isn't that so? But when we present everyone mature in Christ, we are striving for that kind of mature response to all of the challenges and opportunities that we face in our relationships. Christian people say that the primary relationship that we have is with God through His Son. And as we begin to own that and believe that, we see that through that primary relationship, we gain the tools necessary for us to improve the relationships we're involved in all the time, every day, which is the primary location for where we learn how to be what God has made us in his image. St. Teresa of Avila, the great writer on the spiritual life, said, if you find yourself in the kitchen," Among the pots and the pans, you must find God in the kitchen among the pots and the pans. Which is a perfect segue to Mary and Martha. Martha is, as they would say, central casting. Send me a perfect example of the overfunctioner in the family. Right? I don't know what kind of a family you were raised in, but boy, we had women in my family who were running all over the place doing stuff, continuing. You couldn't think straight with all that going on all the time. Right? And then, of course, as Martha, true to form, says to Jesus, Lord, my sister is sitting here listening to you. Could you please tell her to come and help me? Now, it might interest you to know that in the House of Deputies listserv, there's been an enormous amount of conversation this week about the gospel. And so given our time and, and age in which we live, we have a number of people who are all over Jesus like a cheap suit because he didn't get up and get his own coffee, right? And why not all three of them, Mary, Martha, and Jesus, get dinner ready together? (laughs) Right? Well, I guess so. Maybe. But if we focus too narrowly on that kind of outlook, we're going to miss what this is about. This gospel is about the tension between the contemplative and the active. And Martha represents the active, and Mary represents the contemplative. And so often in Christianity, we have seen and understood, particularly in the practice of the spiritual life, that maybe the more authentic spiritual life is a person who is contemplative and off, uh, maybe in a religious community, and is focusing on the real deal, And the people who are active in the world are, well, in the world, and it's kind of unfortunate, but somebody has to be. In one sense, that's a caricature of the purposes of the religious life and their origins within the development of Christianity. Because it was believed by those who did feel they needed to go away, that the tools that they learned and the impulses that they had internally in their own life were the same impulses that all human beings have spiritually. And so in the midst of great activity, everybody is called in some way to bring a contemplative dimension to the way in which they live their daily lives. And so Jesus in his admonition to Martha is speaking about all this. I read a commentary on this pericope, use that term and amaze your friends. Pericope is a section of, a, of, of, of the Bible, a, a text that you read at the liturgy. And it's a Greek word. It means a section of the text. So when you read commentaries, they'll be on a pericope. So I read a commentary on this pericope, and they had an English translation of an Italian poem that had been written about Mary and Martha and the best line in it was, listen, if I sat around on my salvation the way Mary does, who'd keep this house together? <laughs> right? Are they mutually exclusive? The best explainer of all this, for me, is uh, a person I talk about all the time, and that's Father Thomas Keating. And in one of his books, he... he uh, wrote a commentary on this section of Luke's gospel about Mary and Martha. And this is what he said. Jesus' statement is a call both to Mary and Martha, not just to Martha. Martha's activity was good. Mary's was better, but neither was good enough. Both needed to move into the union and harmony of the two which is the contemplative dimension of the Gospel. This parable encourages us to seek the integration of action and prayer. This time of contemplative prayer is the place of encounter between the creative vision of union with Christ and its incarnation in daily life. Without this daily confrontation, the contemplative vision can stagnate into a privatized game of perfectionism or succumb to the subtle poison of seeking one's own satisfaction in prayer. On the other hand, without the contemplative vision, daily renewed in contemplative prayer, action can become self-centered and forgetful of God. The contemplative dimension guarantees the union of Martha and Mary. So, again, like with maturity, how would we understand the nature of this contemplation in a way that would not be completely external for most people? So I might start with a suggestion that I mentioned last week, I've said also before, and that is that uh, there have been some studies done on human behavior and on uh, people's emotional, mental Spiritual health, and some of the findings suggest that each one of us needs to spend at least 20 minutes a day doing absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Can you do that? It really is hard for me. You know, the Puritan ethic also still is alive and well in American life, isn't it? Any of that kind of downtime is, you know, somehow you're not at it. And you gotta be at it in order for this to be the case. A lot of us wanna be at it so we're not alone with our thoughts. But the contemplative life has a particular way of being done. There are more than one pattern for it. But contemplation is also being quiet. Contemplation is also doing nothing. In fact, some people who begin to practice centering prayer said, Well, gee, what's that all about? Nothing's going on. Right? Nothing is happening here. Because, you know... We want to have a little action. So maybe a starting place is to say, how can we uh, do some straight thinking about something? Sometimes sitting and doing nothing doesn't actually mean doing nothing. It could mean a little wool gathering, or it could be sitting and reflecting about something you need to do some thinking about. You know? Other findings that have been recent about the 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 human nervous system. We have virtually a liquid nervous system. It means that our feelings and our thinking are simultaneous. So all the emphasis in this culture on feeling has got to include some thinking. Because people use the term feel when they mean think and vice versa. It's the same thing. It occurs together. So rather than marinate in a juice of feeling, do a little thinking. We're living in a culture where there is a continuous, daily, serious set of errors of thinking going on. All you need to do is turn on the TV and see what kind of serious thinking errors are operating. And if people maybe just took a little time, maybe they'd make some forward progress about all of that. So I don't want to neglect the spiritual practices that are involved here. I haven't talked much about them. But the contemplative life does have something to do with being still and listening to the voice that comes to you that you know is not your own. And that can be in the, under the guise of thoughts that come. John McQuarrie, the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford a number of years ago, uh, wrote a whole little book on prayer as thinking. Archbishop Anthony Bloom, the great Russian Orthodox bishop who was in exile in England, wrote a book called Living Prayer where he said, prayer is a piece of straight thinking about God. So it's important to understand the contemplative dimension. What might be some of the areas that could be included in this? Father Thomas Keating says that the three places that on a daily basis we always need to check are what he calls our irrational programs for happiness around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And these three areas govern the whole of how we are in many ways all of them are necessary to be engaged in because they are necessary for who we are as human beings. But when one of them gets out of whack or more than one, we are often in deep spiritual, emotional, and mental trouble. So spending a little time with yourself about these matters can produce great dividends. This week, think about the times you have been able to behave as someone concerned about presenting someone yourself mature in Christ. Remember if there's been ever any time in your life where somebody has reflected back to you the highest and best of that kind of Christian maturity. See if you can bring some balance this week to the contemplative and active aspects of your life and look at them not as mutually exclusive but as both necessary. Amen.